if we truly have a high view of scripture, one in which we have great reverence for scripture and submit to it, then we will accept it as God has given it to us, rather than insisting that it conform to a model that is shaped by how we think he should have. Mm -hmm. And if we refuse to do this, we may claim to have a high view of scripture, when in reality, we have a high view of our view of scripture. Hey everyone, welcome to Faith in the Fold, a podcast for ministry, biblical studies, and Christian living. I'm your host, Kevin Burr. Today's episode is the third in a new series where we'll take a book-by-book approach for most of the New Testament. And it's my hope to bring some of the best of what the Academy has to offer and make that relatable for church audiences. Before we actually get into the individual books of the New Testament, though, I wanted to take some time to dig into the Gospels as examples of ancient biography. Now, to do just that, Dr. Mike Lacona joins us for the second week in a row, this time to talk about the differences between the Gospels. In 2017, Mike wrote a book titled, Why Are There Differences in the Gospels? What We Can Learn from Ancient Biography. I think Mike's book is the clearest and best all-around explanation for why the four canonical evangelists differ in matters of detail, arrangement, and emphasis in each of their accounts. Now, in the book, Mike examines several biographies written by a Greek author named Plutarch, who lived roughly from A.D. 46 to around 120. Plutarch often discussed the same person in different biographies, and Mike shows how these differences in matters of detail, arrangement, and emphasis from Plutarch are precisely the kinds of differences we see in the Gospels. Near the end of the episode, Mike says, Our view of inspiration must be consistent with what we see in Scripture, and I think he's absolutely right. If you enjoy this interview, and think others may benefit from it, could I encourage you to like it and share it on your preferred social media platforms? If you haven't already, would you also consider subscribing to Faith in the Fold so you don't miss out on any future episodes? And as always, thank you so much for tuning in today. Well, Mike, thank you again so much for joining us on the podcast, sir. Really appreciate you being able to take some time to dig into today's topic. We uh, talked last time about um, about kind of oh, what sorts of uh, historical materials we can find in the Gospels, what uh, literary type, what genre the Gospels are. And so that brings us to our topic today, why are there differences in the Gospels. This is something that you have written on, and I will put a link to uh, your book on this in the description below. But uh, it was a couple of years ago that you uh, you published, Why Are There Differences in the Gospels? What We Can Learn from Ancient Biography. And of those uh, who are watching, here is a, um, here's a copy of that. Um, when was this uh, published? Pretty recently, right? Yeah, it, um, it has a copyright of 2017. It actually came out at the end of November in 2016. It debuted uh, at the annual meeting of the Society of Biblical Literature, and Oxford University Press had a, a table there. Yeah, And so that's when I guess they just made it available a little bit ahead of time. It was kind of cool, too, because uh, all of their copies sold out within just, I think, three hours. Oh, wow. So uh, and that's great. They had two tables on each side, a table on each side of the cash register. You know, all the other books that have been out a year or longer 
behind, but you know how it is at SBL. So right. they have these two long tables with all the new books that came out this year. Mm-hmm. And mine was the only one and it sold out. I mean, mine was the only one that sold out uh, real quickly and within like uh, two or three hours. It was, was, was kind of neat. That is pretty cool. Yeah, that's definitely cool. Um, I grabbed this one maybe a year or two afterwards because um, I was I was right around the time of um, narrowing in on my dissertation topic, which um, we spent some time talking with you and Dr. Keener about before we eventually landed on this one thing that um, actually came out of a, a paper that I had written for Dr. Keener's uh, seminar on the historical Jesus. We had mentioned last time in our episode last time, a fellow by the name of Richard Burridge. He's one of the guys that really kind of put the um, kind of put the the feather in the cap on the notion that the Gospels are ancient biographies. You'd mentioned some other folks who started maybe sometime around the seventies or eighties had started kind of making that idea popular again, mm-hmm. and then Richard Burridge set out to disprove that. Ended up coming to be one of the strongest proponents of that particular uh, particular perspective. A similar thing happened to me. Uh, maybe I'll have the same impact that Richard Burridge did. <laughs> I, I, I started my uh, seminar on the historical Jesus uh, paper uh, thinking that the criteria of authenticity, th- these, are, these are useless. They, um, they've outrun their, their usefulness. We can find other tools. And the more I started digging into this, and the more I started uh, just sort of reading what general historians were doing, it's like, oh, wow, there's, there's actually a lot of uh, overlap mm-hmm. with what I see these other guys doing, people who would study you know, Caesar and the Roman Empire, compared with what people who are studying Jesus and the Gospels are doing. So, yeah, a little bit of kinship there with Richard Burridge, uh, not to mention similar last names. Maybe there's a connection uh, that goes back a ways. But uh, let's dig into this a little bit. Say that someone is reading, uh, r- reading the Gospels, and they've uh, they've read through um, they've read through Matthew, they've read through Mark, they read through Luke, and they begin to notice, like, okay, here, um, there's some differences. Let's take Matthew and Luke for example. Um, Matthew chapter four, Luke chapter four. We're looking at. The temptation of Jesus, that time of testing Jesus in the wilderness. Matthew has one particular order of the things in which the devil offers to Jesus. Luke has a slightly different order. What what do we make of that? Did uh, you know some people who take the take the text hyper literally would demand that? Well, in one instance, Satan tempted Jesus with things one, two, and three. And then the other instance, he tempted him again with things <laughs> one, three, and two. That seems a bit far-fetched. What do we make when we find differences in the Gospels? Help us kind of work through this. Yeah, good question. I think first it's, it's important to point out that responding by saying, well, they're just like you have different eyewitnesses at a car accident or of, of something, they're all going to report things a little differently, but this is just the typical variation we find in eyewitness testimony that won't fly. Okay. Um, you might say it would between the synoptic gospels, especially let's say Mark and, and John, because you know, these are probably entirely independent. John may have known of Mark, but 
he's generally regarded as independent of Mark yeah. and independent source. So, but it won't work with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And maybe, maybe I can uh, explain it using an illustration. Okay. So let's just say that you and me and Craig Keener and Ben Witherington were, were all at lunch. Okay. okay. Yeah. That'd be fun, wouldn't it? I've, I have so my dissertation before, committee re reunited again. That's right. So on the first anniversary of you passing your oral defense, <laughs> um, we're all there. And um, we noticed that there's some arguing going on at the table next to us. There's a couple there and they're arguing. And over the course of 10 minutes, this argument becomes more and more intense mm -hmm. until finally this couple is standing up and they're yelling at each other. And then the woman picks up uh, a wine bottle and slam slams it on the guy's cheek and busts the bottle and puts a big gash in the guy's cheek. And just then the police come in because they'd been called and they arrest the woman and some paramedics attend to the guy's wound. So one of the police officers comes over to our table and says, did you witness did the four of you witness this argument and what happened? Oh, yeah. Uh, did you see it from the beginning? Oh, yeah. Did you hear what they were saying? Yes, yes, we did. So you heard and saw everything. Yes, we did. In fact, we heard the whole, the whole argument that they had. Okay, so then the police officer gives each of us a piece of paper and a pen and says, I don't want you talking to one another. I want you just to write down. It's only been about 20 minutes. So write down what you saw and what you heard. And just don't consult with one another, just write down what you saw and what you heard to the best of your memory. You can be as, as detailed as you want, it's up to you. So we each do that and then we turn it into the police officer. Now, of course, because we're all there, it's fresh on our memory. And there's, of course there's going, uh, the, the argument starting, that's going to come naturally before she takes the, the bottle and smashes it across his face. Yeah. So there's going to be certain things that appear in certain chronological order. Mm -hmm. And um, certainly if there was a statement, a simple statement that was for some reason memorable, like you cheated on me, I hate you. Um, that might be easy to remember verbatim. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so we might be able to get some things like that, but the gist of the conversation is going to be what we are uh, re recalling. There's not going to be, I mean, just imagine, you know, how much verbatim agreement would we have between the four accounts? Probably not a whole lot. Right. Okay. Now, but if there were, was quite a bit of verbatim agreement between the four accounts, the police officer would be justified in concluding that we did not listen to her and that we collaborated with one another and spoke to one another. Possibly, okay. Yeah. yeah. But there's more, you see the couple was arguing in Spanish. Now, fortunately the four of us are all fluent in Spanish in this <laughs> illustration, but the police officer is not. And so the police officer asks us to translate our accounts uh, of what happened into English. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, you're, you're a New Testament scholar, you have your PhD in New Testament studies, you have spent several years studying uh, Koine Greek. And so you can read the New Testament in Greek, you understand and anybody who is, is even remotely familiar with a second language understands that translation is an art. Mm -hmm. um, and the because 
there are certain words that do not have direct equivalents in the other language. And because the syntax, the grammatical structure in one language differs from another, the way you translate a paragraph today may be slightly different or even quite a bit different than the way you translate it tomorrow. Yeah. That's not to say that one is more accurate than the other. It's just going to be different, mm -hmm. you know, a different way of saying the same thing. And so now let's suppose the four of us write our account of what happened. And then when she, we hand that in to her, she noticed that there's verbatim agreement between a whole lot that's in our accounts. Well, now she's even more justified to conclude that, you know, we have collaborated with one another. Um, or let's just change it a little bit and say three of us are the similar and one isn't, right? Uh, Ben's is a little bit different. So it's like the synoptic gospels versus John, <laughs> right? Yeah. So then, but there's one more thing to it. Okay. And that it's not 20 minutes later, but it's 20 years later. Ah, and a yeah. cold case detective calls us in and say, you know, you guys, I wouldn't have expected you to know this, but the guy ended up dying. And now we're looking at this years later and we think that there was some foul play. Would you sit down and each of you independently recall uh, that conversation and mm. the, how the events transpired 20 years ago? Yeah. Now, if, if that police officer, the cold case detective gets it back, our accounts and notices that three of them have a lot of verbal similarities between them, yeah. there's no question about it that we collaborated with one another. Mm -hmm. Well, this is similar to what we have with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that they are reporting what Jesus, most of what Jesus said in Aramaic, but they're reporting it in Greek, and they're reporting it somewhere between 20 to, uh, 20 to 50 years later yeah. in the synoptics. Mm -hmm. And so when you have this verbal agreement, a lot of verbal agreement between they scholars rightfully conclude that there is some sort of a relationship between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Mm -hmm. And figuring out what that relationship is, is what scholars and students of the New Testament refer to as the synoptic problem. Yeah. So the reason I bring this up, Kevin, is because to say these are the normal variations involved in eyewitness testimony doesn't fly because there's a relationship between these three gospels. Mm -hmm. And it's a literary one on many occasions as well. I mean, I could give reasons for that, but there's a literary relationship between them. And most scholars today think that Matthew and Luke used Mark. So therefore, uh, as their primary source and supplemented him. So in those instances where we have the triple tradition, the same story reported by Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and there's a lot of verbal similarity, um, they think that Matthew and Luke are dependent on Mark. And so we look at what they do with Mark, mm -hmm. how they edited Mark. And so that becomes of prime importance when we're looking at why there are differences in the Gospels. We want to look at patterns and infer what they're doing to cause these differences. Yeah, 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 that makes sense. And so what we would, uh, we would, um, you know, like we spent some time talking about uh, last episode, we, uh, we can be fairly confident that uh, the Gospel of Mark was probably written first. Um, you know, uh, other folks have made cases for one or the other, but as of now, the, 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 the consensus position is that the uh, Gospel of Mark was written first, a, a term called Markan priority, 
And then with um, with Mark, we see uh, a significant portion uh, earlier at the time of recording earlier in the day. I recorded the episode that is going to be in this series on the gospel of Mark with one of my professors from seminary. And I think he was saying something along the lines of in the gospel of Matthew, Matthew incorporates some 600 of Mark's 661 or so verses. Hmm. So it's a sizable portion. It, like if you want to count verses, just kind of have a convenient to uh, convenient. Yeah, I've heard it's about point. 90%. It, it, it is an extraordinary percentage. And, um, <clears throat> And so he said that, uh, you know, Matthew kind of takes roughly 600 or so of Mark's 660 something verses and he uses them. He condenses a lot of that material mm-hmm. uh, like you, you use the word edit and that might make some uh, some church folks kind of squeamish. But it's to edit something is, is not necessarily to to change the substance of it in any way. Um can you talk a little bit about to the editing process? Like what would Matthew and Luke have done with Mark or some of the Mark, some of the material that's in Mark could help yeah. us work through that a little bit. Yeah. And I think you, you correctly point out that some people are going to be uncomfortable with that term. Why would Matthew use Mark? First of all, much less edit him. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if Mark is divinely inspired, there's no need for editing. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, but that presupposes a form of divine inspiration that carries a lot of freight with it and and goes unsupported, unstated. Mm -hmm. So what does it mean when we say something is divinely inspired? I mean, that's a whole topic for itself because the Bible really doesn't tell us. I mean, it says like 2 Timothy 3.16 might be the closest you get to it. All scripture is God-breathed, theonoustos. But what does that look like? That sounds almost like divine dictation. Right. But nobody really today thinks of divine inspiration as divine dictation. Certainly because- not in any kind of all-encompassing sense, right? There are clearly times, say, in the prophets or other, other instances where, you know, and the word of the Lord came to me and God said, you know, write this. Mm-hmm. But that th- those instances are clearly marked. Those instances are clearly indicated in Scripture. The word of the Lord came to me and said, write this. That's or right. go and say to the people. And it doesn't seem to be the case with um, with either of the Gospels. You might maybe we run the risk of making an argument from silence. But at the beginning of uh, the Gospels, not a single one of them says, you know, hey, uh, the word of the Lord came to me. And um, here you go. 16 to you know, 16 to 28 chapters later. Here we are. <laughs> like that, that doesn't you know, seem to be the case. What's interesting, Kevin, you you mentioned how like the prophets in the Old Testament, in a number of those cases, you have God telling the prophet, you know, here's what I'm telling you, tell this to the people. And then it goes on to say what the prophet told the people. And it's a little bit differently. I mean, it's worded differently, (laughs) right? The message is the same, but he's paraphrasing. Mm -hmm. He's restating what God had said. He's not saying it it with the exact words. Yeah, Um, Yeah. So that should be a model to us. We really don't know what divine inspiration looked like. What you know, and then it's like, well, second Peter, what is it, 1, 20 and 21, where it talks about men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God, carried along by the Holy Spirit. What does that look like? Right. Again, that sounds like divine dictation, but it it's not really saying that. So what we have to do is we got to look at the final product and infer from the final product what divine inspiration might look like. Mm-hmm. And when you do that, you find things like Paul had a memory lapse in 1 Corinthians 1.16, where he says he's not sure if he 
uh, you know, who else he may have baptized outside yeah. of the household of Stephanus. And, um, you know, certainly we don't anticipate the Holy Spirit saying, hey, Paul, let's take a writing break. Um, it, it eludes me at the moment. I, I need to check my heavenly records to see who else you may have baptized. Or how about occasions when uh, Matthew and Luke seem to improve Mark's grammar? Um, so, for example, when uh, Mark says that after Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit um, ekbalo, drove him out into the wilderness. And I, I think if I remember call correct, if I recall correctly, that term ekbalo is used, I think 16 times in Mark and it always carries the sense, or I think all but one time it carries the sense of casting out demons, right? Yeah. This is the, the term that's used of Jesus being cast out into the wilderness by the Holy spirit. Yeah. Like when a Matthew Greek went, reader or a hearer, somebody listening to this in Greek would might find that kind of strange. And so, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, we don't normally talk about Jesus being cast out into the <laughs> wilderness. So an English audience, that sounds kind of strange. Yeah. And so when Matthew and Luke use Mark there, they seem to soften his term, uh, ago and anago, to be to lead out or lead up into the wilderness. Mm -hmm. And that, that sounds better. So you got some instances like this. Well, certainly we don't anticipate the Holy Spirit uh, would read Mark and then say, hmm, you know what, I, I can do better than that. Let's say it this way, Matthew. Um, you know, so we've got some things like this and there's some editorial fatigue in them. And it's like, oh, how did I miss that? You know, so there is a, whatever divine inspiration involved, there was definitely a human element involved. Yeah. And we, that's part of the divine inspiration process. And that human element involves some human imperfection. So, um, this is something that we have to recognize. Um, I, I, you know, the scripture is what it is. Uh, I think it was Ben Witherington that, that said, um, you know, scripture isn't necessarily what we want it to be. It is what it is. Um, and that's what divinely, when we see these, these human phenomena in scripture, this is what divinely inspired scripture looks like. Mm -hmm. And then if you want to play around and try to figure out how divine inspiration, the process, or whatever it means with those things in mind, well, that's a good exercise to do. And that's the topic yeah. for another discussion. But I think this is all very important when we're talking about gospel differences to recognize this relationship between the gospels, that there's a human element involved, that editing was involved for various reasons. Sometimes, like with the Sermon on the Mount, you've got... Uh, it's virtually unanimous among scholars of Matthew that what Matthew has done here, because his Sermon on the Mount version is, uh, is like uh, more than three times longer than Luke's. Right. And it's a little bit different. So, and, but it definitely appears to be the same occasion. Um, and so what Matthew has probably done as most uh, scholars think is that he's taken the Sermon on the Mount and that he has edited it to include other teachings that Jesus gave on other occasions. And as I've studied the Sermon on the Mount for several years, I've seen that Matthew arranges these teachings in an artistic manner that most of them are connected pretty well to one another. And to recognize the connection helps illuminate some of the meaning behind them that may not be so evident to us otherwise. Mm -hmm. So, um, but they do this. This was part of what divine inspiration was. And we see this kind of editing involved. I'll just, let me just give you one real quick, real yeah. quick. And that is the, the location of the Sermon on the Mount. 
So Luke has it on a plane. Matthew has it on Mount, on, on top. And um, um, most scholars think that Matthew has adjusted the, the location, changed it to the top because he's a new Moses. And rather than Moses bringing the law, Jesus is bringing in a new interpretation. He's not bringing a new law. He's bringing a new interpretation to it, uh, a deeper interpretation. Um, and I've been to Israel twice. I've been at the traditional site where they say the Sermon on Mount happened and another place, which is on top of a mount. And I can tell you it didn't happen at either place, because if you've got hundreds of people, perhaps that are listening to him, it says crowds, you know, so right. if you've got hundreds of people that are supposed to listen, I can tell you that at the top of the mount, the acoustics are horrible. There's no way that hundreds of people are going to be able to hear him. Mm -hmm. Um, but if it's on a plane and maybe the mount is in the back and people are sitting on there, it would form kind of an amphitheater uh, thing. And people could have, you could have had thousands, perhaps, that would have heard him. So the sermon on the plane that Luke presents is probably the, the real location of where it would have been. But Matthew makes some adjustments both in content and in location in order to make theological points or to make, you know, a more artistic sermon. Yeah. Let me ask this question because I can imagine how some folks might hear something like that, and they would um, they would wonder. Now wait a second you you mean that Matthew is intentionally changing this? Um, well, how, how does that fly? I mean, it, it is that is that not to some degree deceptive? Um, I, I know the answer that I would give for that, but um, how would you respond to folks who might get a little antsy about uh, about you mentioning that Matthew's maybe made some made some editorial adjustments to this? Sure. So when we read the Psalms, one of the Psalms says that God sleeps, right? Now, we don't really believe that God sleeps. Should we feel uncomfortable with the psalmist saying that God sleeps? Well, no, because a psalm, it is, it's a song. It is poetry. Okay. Mm. Um, when Proverbs chapter 8 talks about wisdom, standing on top of a roof. It personifies wisdom as a woman standing on a roof and calling to all the simpletons saying, come and learn from me. We really don't take that literally that there's a woman whose name is wisdom doing such a thing. Mm -hmm. And it, for someone to say, well, yeah, but if you don't, you're dehistoricizing, you know, or, or you're <laughs> interpreting. No, you've got to take into consideration genre. This is wisdom right. literature. Um, or when Jesus tells a parable, I knew a guy once who said, that the prodigal son actually lived, that this was a real story. But, but I said to this man, but it's a parable. Parables are fictitious. They're not meant to reflect historical accounts. They are fictitious stories meant to illustrate um, certain principles. Yeah. Oh, no, no. They've got to be real, historical, or, or else you're denying that this is the word of God. Um, okay, well, you're, you're missing the thing about genre. Well, with ancient biography, we have to understand that they operated by some different literary conventions than modern biography. Just mm -hmm. because it has the same word biography doesn't mean that they operate by the same rules uh, in the first century or in antiquity that we operate by today. Mm -hmm. Those kinds of things where you could um, uh, displace the location and transplant it somewhere else or you could transfer what one person said to the lips of another, or you could shine your literary spotlight on person so that you're only um, mentioning one person uh, doing an act when you are, uh, when you understand that there were several, you're just shining your attention on that one person. 
Um, there's all kinds of things that you could have done like this. These were compositional devices that were part and parcel of writing ancient biography and even uh, ancient history to a lesser extent. Yeah, yeah. So Matthew, um, taking taking what Jesus has said, is is certainly certainly operating within the conventions of his day to be able to arrange this material, maybe even the precise location. Um, I mean, Luke doesn't give us a precise location. It's pretty generic. Matthew's location is equally generic. Um, a mountain. Well, I mean, if you've been there, uh, you mentioned you've been there a couple of times. I've been over there a couple of times. Um, mountains and plains. Yeah, man, that uh, <laughs> that could be anywhere, you know? And um, so Matthew operating comfortably within the conventions of his day to be able to make these kinds of adjustments to highlight this, uh, this truth, especially to highlight this particular emphasis of Matthew that you mentioned, where Jesus is very clearly presented as a new and greater Moses figure, mm-hmm. where you have somebody who is delivering law from a mountain, where you have somebody who has this... Um, has these kinds of ex- these experiences of escaping death as a child, you know, and and um, you know at the hand of the king and you know these kinds of things. Matthew is really highlighting all this kind of stuff, and you're and 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 you're saying that that is that is for Matthew's day and time that is perfectly acceptable for him to be able to do that because we don't just see that in the Gospels, right? We see that outside of the Gospels and some other kinds of literature too, right? That's right. Um, And like what was really illuminating a a huge factor, light bulb factor for me, was as I was going through Plutarch's lives, um, I was seeing these things. So Plutarch, not the guy in the Hunger Games, but the real Plutarch, (laughs) born around the year 40, died. I was not expecting a Hunger Games reference. It's not, you caught me off guard. That was good. (laughs) So he's born around the year 40, died a little bit after 120, and he wrote more than 60 biographies of which 48 have survived. Much of what we know about the ancient world comes from Plutarch. He's considered to be the greatest ancient biographer. Okay. All right. So I read through his 48 biographies, and as I got to the end, I noticed, you know what, a bunch of these, nine in fact, um, all regard or concern people, main characters who lived around the same time. And many of them knew one another and participated in the same events. So naturally he's going, Plutarch is going to tell the same story on multiple occasions. So, wow. What if we compared how Plutarch tells the same story multiple times? Does he copy and paste? What does he do? So I went through these nine biographies a second time Mm -hmm. and a third time. And I made a, an extensive catalog of all the stories in each of them and saw which ones are Plutarch tells on two or more occasions and depending on how you divide them up, I, I found 36 stories, and there are 30 of them that contain differences. So let me just give you one example. There are so many of them, but uh, one of them that I really like, um, you, you've got um, um, Pompey in the year 52 BC, because um, 
Rome is in a state of great chaos. Yeah. So contemporary of Julius Caesar, right? That's, oh, that's yeah. the time frame that we're that we're operating here for folks who who you know it may have been a while since they turned on the history channel and caught something other than aliens. Yeah, and, and you're <laughs> absolutely right. It's a, it's a um He's a contemporary of Julius Caesar. He ended up becoming a nemesis. Uh, the two of them fought one another, and Caesar would end up defeating Pompey. Um, and some you'll hear some say Pompey, but it's actually Pompey is, is is how it. Pompey is the city that was destroyed by the volcano. Pompey is the great Roman general. Okay, so um, at one point Caesar is he's up and coming. But Pompey is the number one guy in Rome at this point. Caesar mm -hmm. wouldn't cross the Rubicon for another three years. And so the Roman Senate agrees to let Pompey be what is called the sole consul for that year. Now, different from how we govern here in the United States, where you have a Senate, uh, a House, Congress, and you have a president. The way uh, the Roman Republic worked is you had a Roman Senate, and then you had two people who served as consuls. And that was the lead person or two people of the land. And they served together. You only served for one year. You could run again, but you had to wait 10 years before you could run for consul again. Mm -hmm. So anyway, they said, Pompey, you can be sole consul and you can have, you don't have to have anything approved by the Senate this year. We are in difficult times. We need someone. The, you're the only one that can really help us at this point. We trust you. Go ahead. Make the, whatever you state is law. So Pompey accepts this. And um, one of the laws he makes is that if someone's on trial, you can't come in and read an encomium, which is a speech which uh, gives lavish praise to the defendant, because that wouldn't really prove his innocence. All right. It would just sure. tend to bias the jury. Mm -hmm. So Pompey makes this law. He's outside um, of Rome at the time. And so he breaks this law by writing an encomium, gives it to an emissary and sends it to be read at the trial of his friend Plancus. And we know this also because uh, Cassius Dio and another one, I, I don't know if it's Suetonius, I don't know, remember who it was, but, but um, someone else reported this as, as well. So two others did. So we know that he sent an emissary in who read this at trial. Plutarch, that's how Plutarch reports this in his life of Cato Minor. Mm -hmm. But in his life of Pompey, when he's reporting the same story, he just has Pompey himself abbreviates it. He brushes out some details. He gives us what I would call the guy version of the story. We're not so much concerned about the, the, the details, precise details. Just give us the gist, get to the bottom line. Yeah. And he has Pompey himself go in and read the encomium himself. After all, Pompey wrote the word. So it's not really too much of a distortion. It's what um, Daryl Bach would, would call the difference between precision and accuracy precision and accuracy. Okay. They're both accurate, but the other is precise, precisely yeah. accurate, yeah. Uh, or it's accurate in a precise sense. Well, we find something that, that's similar to this in the New Testament with Jesus healing the centurion servant. This story is told by both Matthew and by Luke. So um, Luke has it that the centurion has this sick servant, and so he sends some Jewish elders out to ask Jesus to come and heal his servant. Jesus says, all right, let's go. And then the centurion has some second thoughts. He sends some friends out to say, no, no, you know what? Yeah, I'm unworthy to have you come under my roof, uh, but you're a man of authority just like me. So just say the word and my servant will be healed. Jesus praises the faith of the centurion and he heals him from a distance without ever seeing the centurion or his servant. 
Mm-hmm. When Matthew tells the same story, he just has the centurion himself go in person. There's no Jewish elders. There's no friends that go. The, the centurion himself goes and makes the request to Jesus in person. Matthew abbreviates. He gives us the guy version of the story. Luke gives us the girl version, right? So, <laughs> I've, I've heard you use that analogy in a, in a uh, debate on YouTube that you can find at, uh, at your YouTube channel, uh, which I'll, I'll put a link to uh, your channel in the description below this. And I, I, I had a chuckle when you said this, like, oh, man, you know, I, I just, anyone I, who's married can understand. It, I, you know? I just need the gist, right? Because that's, that's about all I can handle at the moment. Yeah. So, I mean, there's just so many different instances of this kind of stuff, but, you know, that's what we would, it's compressing, it's abbreviating the story, and it's also transferring. So instead of having the emissaries go to talk to Jesus, um, it it just transfers it back to the centurion and the centurion himself goes in person. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, maybe something we could give, because Plutarch is saying it's kind of like a portrait uh, is what a biography is. Mm So if you imagine a photographer, maybe a photographer goes out, it's a beautiful day, there's this meadow and beautiful day, and there's this couple holding hands, walking through the meadow, and the photographer thinks, wow, what a romantic moment. And he, uh, he takes a, a picture of it, right? And he looks at it and says, wow, yeah, this is definitely a romantic uh, uh, moment here for that couple. But you know, I could really bring out the romantic element in this even more by some editing. And so the photographer makes the sky a little bluer, makes the grass a little greener, and then takes a little haze and casts it throughout the entire photograph. And now it shows you can see it like a dreamy kind of thing where the couple holding hands is walking through the meadow on the beautiful day. And you see that photograph edited. And now not only do you realize it's a romantic element, you can almost feel the butterflies in your stomach. Yeah. It yeah. brings out that extra that was actually there, right. but is not there uh, so much as strong with the precision. It and helps so, you more clearly visualize what, uh, what was implicitly there. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. So you say, well, is it, is it correct? Well, yes and no. You know, But if you're not so concerned about precise details, and they weren't, then you're fine. If you have their level of concern for precision, keeping in mind that no form of recording, any type of audio video exists, they are uh, in some instances relying on their own memory, memory of eyewitnesses, decades removed from the events, right? Like you said earlier in the um, example where... um, you know, where the four of us were uh, eating lunch and um, hearing this uh, Spanish-speaking couple <laughs> argue <laughs> 20 years later, we're recreating that. Um, it, it, if you have all of those inherent limitations, then it, I think just from a logical perspective, from a logical sense, it makes so much more sense that the, that the writers of this kind of work, writers of ancient biographies, would have used these type of conventions because that was what they had available to them. That just, that, that just seems logical to me. It doesn't even it, like it doesn't even have to get to the level of being, you know, theologically disturbing of, oh, no, can I trust this? It's like, well, yes, you can. These guys are like if they like they just they know that this is how you write this kind of material. 
Yeah. It, it was their preferred way too. They could have written it like we do today. In fact, there was one guy who did. His name is Asconius. And I suppose that most of your viewers will never have heard of Asconius. <laughs> and he wrote while uh, Nero was alive. Mm. Um, and we have some of his writings. And again, he wrote, he wrote a lot like modern uh, biographers, historians would write. But his writings aren't so much preserved as the others because they weren't valued as much because that's not what the ancients wanted. They wanted a good recollection of the past, but they wanted it to be good literature as yeah. well. Yeah, absolutely. So we've seen some folks have, um, we, we've seen some editing and you know, like maybe adjustment of uh, location and things like that. Is there anything else that we find the uh, uh, find the gospel authors doing that helps us kind of understand why there would be some differences in um, you know, in, in their accounts? Sure. Uh, one that comes to my to mind immediately uh, is the genealogies. Okay. People yeah. try to reconcile the genealogies, and they'll say, "Well, you know, Luke." He's recording the, he's providing the genealogy through the line of Joseph, whereas Matthew is doing it through Mary or something like that, you know? And, you know, scholars have looked at that for a while and said, no, that doesn't work. And there's numerous reasons why. Well, then you, you look at things more carefully with Matthew and Matthew's the more artistic of, of the synoptic authors, mm -hmm. um, like the thing with Moses and, and, yeah. placing, you know, the location to the top of the Sermon on the Mount because he's the new and improved Moses, Jesus is. So what, what you have in Matthew, his focus is on also one of the themes in Matthew is Jesus is the Messiah, the son of David, right? So um, what you have in Matthew's genealogy, he goes through these things. And in chapter one, verse 17, he says, so these are all the generations between Abraham and Jesus. You have 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations from David to the deportation to Babylon, and 14 generations from the deportation to Jesus. He says, this is all the generations. Well, how could it be all? Because Luke has more. And if you go to the Old Testament, there are even more generations than what Luke uh, <laughs> has. Sorry. So that's one thing. Mm -hmm. And what is this? If he's got three sets of 14, well, you know, why three sets of 14? Um, what's so special? Is there something special about the number 14? And then you look and you say, okay, well, the way he's got these divided up, the number 14 in the second set is Jeconiah. And number one in the third set is Jeconiah. So he kind of cheats and uses one of those names a second time. So it's obvious he's not trying to be precise or overly careful here. Matthew isn't inventing generations. He's not inventing people. Uh, he's putting some, some people in there, but he's more concerned with three times 14. Mm. Why is that? Well, because uh, in Judaism, they had a rhetorical device called gematria, gematria, where you assigned a numerical value to a letter. So it'd be like A equals one, B equals two, C equals three, etc. Well, the name Dawid or David has three letters in it. There were no vowels. So you had a D, a V, and a D. The, the D is the fourth letter in the Hebrew alphabet. The V is the sixth letter. So you got four, six, four, 14. All right. 
So what Matthew is doing is he is artistically, he's artistically composed his genealogy to say on three times <laughs> for emphasis, Jesus is the son of David, the mm -hmm. Messiah. So again, there's not precision that's involved here, but he's trying to show through the genealogy artistically that Jesus is the Messiah. It's all a matter of painting the portrait, a literary portrait of his main character. Yeah. If, if folks who are kind enough to listen to this find themselves starting to get kind of antsy about this sort of thing, um, I think we can look at some other examples of statements that Jesus makes that are not um, literally, scientifically true, but are still true in, uh, um, in another, maybe more significant sense. For example, um, and you, if you just, if you wanted to be kind of snarky and ask somebody, does something have to be scientifically true for it to be true? Or can something be scientifically false and it still be true? I, I pulled this one on my uh, wife uh, a couple of weeks ago, and she's she's a physical therapist and has a good head for science and stuff like that. Um, by the grace of my high school chemistry teacher, did I pass high school chemistry? So <laughs> I'm I'm not uh, I'm not much when it comes to the hard sciences like this. So I asked her, you know, hey, does something need to be scientifically true uh, for it to be uh, true, or can it be scientifically false but still true? And she kind of looked at me like. Right, what are you trying to what are you trying to pull on me? It's like, okay, well, people get this, right? Jesus is not literally the lamb of God. Jesus is not scientifically, that is, biologically, the vine. Okay. Yeah, like we we get this, right? We understand this. Okay, now, there might so, be people in our culture today in in the West who would take that into consideration and say, <laughs> <laughs> There's gender fluidity here. <laughs> Did Jesus identify as a lamb? Um, no, but like we understand to some degree here that something need not be, per se, scientifically true or uh, hyper-literally true, and yet it can still very much be true in, um, in, in really kind of a, a spiritual or some kind of a metaphorical figurative sense. If you can, if you can accept that, and know that, obviously, because Jesus makes those kinds of statements, people in the ancient world were comfortable operating with that understanding of what is true, then it need not bother us as much to see somebody like Matthew taking these um, these different generations and arranging them artistically to highlight a point that is already apparent and it's that Jesus is the unique the uniquely anointed son of David Jesus is the uniquely anointed new and greater Moses yeah. you think you think is that kind of a fair way to sort of summarize some of what we've been talking about here yeah absolutely yeah absolutely so, cool um Maybe give us one more example of maybe some other kinds of differences we, we might be able to find that uh, help us kind of see what, what were the gospel authors trying to do? Wow. Okay. Let's see. Well, there's so many of them. Um, um, well, let's take the resurrection narratives. Okay. Great. So there's, yeah. there's quite a bit of, uh, quite a bit of differences in, in, in those. And some of them I, I can't explain, to be honest with you. I think 
that something is going on and some of the differences were intentional. Um, I, I just, I don't know what they are or mm-hmm. why they did it. But uh, for example, in John chapter 20, verse one, it says early in the morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene got up and went to the tomb and she saw it empty. All right. Um, and, and then, but the synoptic gospels have multiple women going to the tomb. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I think what's going on here is John is doing something that I saw Plutarch doing more than anything else. And that okay. is, he, he's doing literary spotlighting. He is shining the spotlight on the main person, which in this case is Mary Magdalene. And the reason I think this is going on is because she comes back and says to Peter and the beloved disciple, they have taken the Lord and we, we don't know where they've laid him. Oh man. I don't know that I had noticed we before. Kind of interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Of course, someone might come back and say, well, she's referring to her, Peter and the beloved disciple, but I don't think so because of course, Peter and the beloved disciple wouldn't have known that. And even the tomb was empty until she had just told them five seconds ago. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so, and now watch out, watch what happens. It says that Peter and the beloved disciple, and John says, Peter and the beloved disciple got up and ran to the tomb and found it just as Mary had said. Luke says that the women ran, uh, I'm sorry, that Peter ran to the tomb and found it as the women had said. I say, well, okay. Is, is Luke shining his literary spotlight on there, uh, on Peter there? I think so, because mm-hmm. he's the main disciple, Okay. Uh, the beloved disciple includes him. John includes himself as the beloved disciple because he was running to the tomb with Peter, right? But Peter was the main disciple, and that's all Luke was concerned of at that point. He said, Well, how do you know that? Well, 12 verses later, Luke is reporting about Jesus meeting up with the Emmaus disciples. And the the text says that their eyes were kept from recognizing Jesus. And so he's risen from the dead, he's walking with them. And they seem downcast. And so Jesus basically says, hey, why the, why, why the long faces, guys? Yeah. And they say, he's playing with them, you know? And it's, it's like, uh, are you the only one in Jerusalem that doesn't know what's happened here? And he says, why? <laughs> <Not as hell. laughs> he he doesn't it. lie, right? He doesn't say, well, I don't know what's going on. He just asks them to clarify what things are you <laughs> talking about? <laughs> it's, br- it's brilliant. I love it. <laughs> and so they say, well, yeah, well, Jesus, we thought he was the Messiah, but uh, they crucified him on Friday. But uh, the, our women folk went to the tomb this morning, and they saw angels who said he'd been raised from the dead. And then some of our own, plural, went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. Well, Luke, wait a minute, just 12 verses earlier, you said just Peter went. He'd say, I didn't say just Peter. I only mentioned Peter. Obviously, I know that there was others. 12 yeah. verses later, I say some of our own. But Luke, we don't do that today. So? Yeah. Yeah. I, I like that big so what there. One of the things that is absolutely essential for, for folks who are maybe hearing this kind of stuff for the first time or um, you know, maybe folks who are a little bit familiar with this, but maybe not with the specific examples that we've given today. One of the things that you must keep in mind is that the evangelists were using conventions that are simply not our own. Mm -hmm. 
But as we established um, in our last episode, and as you know, hundreds of others have argued uh, argued well, the evangelists are still intending to represent to, to present historically reliable narratives. They're still driving their audiences toward faith in Jesus. They are still, um, they are still pushing folks to realize who Jesus is and why you ought to follow him, why he's worth your time, money, energy, resources, etc. Despite these conventions that we might find odd or potentially troubling, if we're if we're hyper concerned with. Um, you know, with sort of a literal chronological exacting specificity in all details. Um, you know, despite all of those things, you know, despite foregoing all of that, what they were doing was still perfectly acceptable in their day and time. And this is something that maybe some folks don't understand, or, or maybe they're not aware of. The um, it's not like these differences in the gospels are news. It's not new material, right? I mean, the um, yeah, the church has been no, the church has known about this ever since people were starting to read and compare the gospels, and there was at least one notable attempt uh, in the was it third or fourth century? Uh, a gentleman by the name century. of Tatian, right? Oh, uh, that's the late second century. Oh, yeah. my apologies. Yeah, Tatian with the Diatessaron. I thought you were referring to Augustine with his Harmony of the Gospels. Yeah. Okay. So, like, there have been attempts. Of folks to you know, try to weave these narratives together, and I think it was in our conversation uh, last time where we um, where we noted it, it. Really, this is this is interview five at the time of recording. This is interview five of this week, and then we're only on Wednesday. <laughs> oh, of of this. So like I I had uh, Keener and uh, and and Daryl Bach um, a couple of days ago, and then you, and then an, another guy, Alan Black, one of my professors from seminary. And so I'm, they're all starting to run together, but we've, um, you know, we can lose the, the unique, um, we can use the unique, lose the unique contributions of the evangelists if we try to harmonize them. Mm-hmm. But if we can let them stand alone and, uh, and really see and understand sort of what they're trying to do, Matthew especially, you know, Jesus is the new and greater Moses, um, Mark for example, um, you know, the, you know, Jesus as Messiah and his form of Messiahship leads to suffering and glorification. Luke and uh, his, um, his emphasis on, um, on pouring out the Holy Spirit and, uh, you know, it, it, Jesus' concern for marginalized people and so on. It, we could really lose those kinds of, um, kinds of unique contributions. If we don't allow them to do the kinds of things that they have done, and uh, we can't appreciate those, Tom. Yeah, it, it's kind of like with the resurrection narratives. They try to harmonize them by saying, "Well, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb. She saw it empty, and she, as she's running back, there were some other women going to the tomb. They crossed paths, but didn't know it. And you know, try. I, I think." If, if Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were around, they'd say, well, what are you doing? Why, why are you doing that? That's, that's not what happened. You know, yeah. you lose that unique perspective that you're talking about. Yeah. One principle I tell my students at Houston Baptist University uh, is 
if we truly have a high view of scripture, one in which we have great reverence for scripture and submit to it, then we will accept it as God has given it to us, rather than insisting that it conform to a model that is shaped by how we think he should have. Mm -hmm. And if we refuse to do this, we may claim to have a high view of scripture, when in reality, we have a high view of our view of scripture. I'm stepping on some toes with that, but yes, sir. Yes, sir. Mike, as we uh, kind of wind down our time together this afternoon, is there is there anything else, kind of any uh, any uh, you know, home runs that you want to want to hit for us as we uh, as we close this afternoon? Well, another principle I give my students is that our view of Scripture needs to be consistent with what we observe in Scripture. Mm-hmm. This is just common sense. So we look at what we observe in Scripture. We see these things. We observe these compositional devices, and these were prescribed. Uh, not, some of them are inferred from Plutarch. Some mm-hmm. of them are prescribed in the compositional textbooks by Theon, um, who goes on to say that these are practical. These are applicable for every form of writing. And he mentions histories mm-hmm. as one of them. So, these, so this is an ancient author who is giving instructions on how you would craft a narrative like what we would find in, in histories, which would cover historiography and biography. And for people who are obviously trained to be able to write narratives of this length and depth, they would be familiar with these kinds of devices. That's right. So this is the kind of writing that is prescribed. And then you come to the gospels and you read them through the lenses of the, of these prescribed, these prescription glasses, you could say. Yeah. And it's like, okay, it all comes together. It makes sense. But take those glasses off and put uh, lenses on that are prescribed to read as though they're 20th century writings, 21st century writings, and you come up with discrepancies and contradictions. Now, mm-hmm. what makes more sense? Do you want to read them through the lenses of 20? Do you want to read first? If Look, if you're a biographer in the first century, writing about a person who had lived in the first century, uh, for people who had who readers who were also living in the first century, would you write using the literary conventions in play in the first century or those that would not come into play until more than 1500 years later? Yeah. And the answer is obvious. So when you read them according to modern literary conventions, that's when you end up with contradictions, discrepancies, a lot of them. You read them through the lenses of first century history writing, compositional textbooks, et cetera. And uh, I promise you, more than 90% of these discrepancies just melt away. Mm-hmm. It just makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Let me see if I can quote you on this. I was, um, I, while looking at the screen, I was trying to handwrite a note because I wanted to, that's a skill I've developed as I've been podcasting for a few months now. Our view of scripture must include what we see in scripture. Can yeah, I quote you on that? view of scripture should be consistent with what we observe in scripture should be consistent got it with what got it okay excellent our view of scripture should be consistent with what we see in scripture that that is a a wonderfully succinct and clear um i would say prescription 
for anybody who is trying to wrestle with the notion of what does inspiration look like? Mm-hmm. That was what you, what we were talking a little bit about earlier. Inspiration, if we are going to affirm that scripture is inspired, and I think a necessary and, and worthwhile task is then to define, well, what do we mean by inspired? Because I don't know that Paul there in 2 Timothy meant precisely what we mean, right? When we say inspired, I don't know if Paul, um, that word inspired too is kind of a weird translation for that because you had mentioned the Greek term earlier, theonoustos. It means if you break it up into kind of its different parts, it's something along the lines of God breathed. And so even then that raises other questions like, well, what does that mean? Uh, we're we're kind of uh, kind of stuck with that term too because correct me if I'm wrong, that is not a very common term in the ancient world, right? That's correct. I, I'm I'm pretty certain that Paul coined it. Um, I did a search, and this was a few years ago. I think the only other person who used it was Clement of Alexandria in the sec in the third century. Yeah. Other than that, I could not find anyone else who uses that term. So it certainly doesn't seem like pagans are using no. this term very much. Jewish author, authors that we'd be familiar with, Philo, Josephus, Mm-mm. these guys don't seem to be using that. And so well, I think it's fair to say that we should affirm what Paul says, but then be very careful not to sneakily or unintentionally affirm what we think Paul should mean. Right. We don't want to read into it certain things that that aren't actually there or aren't apparent. Yeah. And so our view of Scripture should be consistent with what we see in Scripture. Yeah. Mike, I use I think, the term observe, but um, yeah, but you can say it any way you want. Oh, you're, you're right. Uh, we're, see, it was, I, was, uh, I was accurate you, without being precise. That's right. You were paraphrasing. <laughs> you, you, you put in a synonym. I've got it now with, uh, with all of its uh, marks and edits and things like that. I've got it right here on my uh, wax tablet, like <laughs> these guys would have used back in the day. Mike, thank you so much, sir, for joining us here on the podcast. This has been an illuminating series of conversations. I'm excited. Your two episodes are going to basically kick off kind of what I'm hoping to do with this uh, series of uh, probably going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 episodes really devoted to taking a deep dive on the new Testament. I have enjoyed our, um, our acquaintance and appreciate your, uh, your kind words on, um, on my dissertation uh, last year and have really enjoyed being able to spend some time with you this week, sir. Can you tell us uh, quickly before we wrap up, where are some avenues where folks might be able to find you and your work. I know you're active on social media and YouTube. Can you give us a couple of things where some folks might be able to find you and follow some of what you do? Sure. Uh, well, I'm on Facebook. I have a personal page and a public figure page. I, I, I'd encourage you not to send me a friend request on my personal page because yeah. uh, you know, if I just take everybody I don't know, I, I don't get to see posts from people I do know. Yeah. So, um, but go ahead and just, and, and I typically don't approve of friend requests unless I know the person. So yeah. uh, go ahead and, and like our public figure page. It's Michael R. Lacona. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, or you can go to my website, risenjesus.com. 
um, our YouTube channel is probably going to be the most valuable place for you. Um, it, it just type in Mike Lacona, you'll see my channel come up. We have over 200 videos. Our, our, we're getting over a million views a year for the That's last great. couple of years. Yeah. And uh, we've got some some really good stuff on, on there as well. And um, yeah, so I think we're on, you know, we're definitely on Twitter. We're on par in Parlor, MeWe, and Instagram. Okay. Um, so uh, you can find us there. And um, I, I guess just, um, or come study with me at Houston Baptist University. We'd love yeah. to have you. Um, and, and Kevin, I just want to say, Dr. Berg, go ahead and get that dissertation published because it's a heck of a good one and it's needed. We need it out there. Thank you very much. I was, uh, my wife was talking to me just this week at, at, at no exaggeration. Um, there's no compositional device here. There's <laughs> just this week. She was telling me, Kevin, all right. You know, I really do think it's important for you to get this published. Um, what are you going to need to tell your church leadership? Like, how are you going to need to kind of help them give you space to be able to do that? I told her, it's like, ah, you know, to really do that, it might mean late nights. It might mean, you know, weekend away. Um, you know. I don't think so, Kevin. The way I remember your, I know it was a year ago, but my recollection of your dissertation was, uh, it was, it was pretty much good to go. You know, if you get it published through a top shelf academic publisher, I don't think you're going to have to do much. Just no. write out a manuscript proposal and this year at SBL or, you know, go see some, some of them and, and turn in a manuscript proposal. Um, I'm, I appreciate that. And, um, you know, for those of you who are family members and are listening to this, uh, you heard it here. Okay. You didn't hear me <laughs> advertising my own work. Um, but anyway, Mike, thank you so much, sir. Really appreciate your time. And uh, I, uh, you'll be in San Antonio this November. Is that right? Actually, it's going to be the first year in a long time that I have not gone to both ETS and SBL. I had to choose between the two. I was going to go to SBL, but then Bob Stewart asked me to serve on a panel at ETS. I agreed. The panel got accepted. So I'm, I'll be in uh, the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And I, I don't intend to go to SBL this year, so I won't see you in San Antonio. Okay. All right. Well, some but, other uh, time then. Until then, sir, take care. God bless. I really appreciate you your brother. time. Bye-bye. <laughs>